Tom. This is Jay Michaels. Hey, Jay, how are you? Very well. If I'm on the line, you're on the air. Great, man. Tom, I'm 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 happy that it's a nice theatrical uh, uh, way that we're we're first speaking. I'm sorry it's under these conditions, however. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's doing the very best they can and trying to remain positive and you know think about the old maxim. Uh, uh, you know this this panic that I feel today is is it something that's really going to be relevant a year from now or or not. That's kind of the way I'm triaging my own panic about things, you know? It's, it's funny. You, not sweat the small stuff. It's funny you say stuff. I have a book like that called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, It's All Small Stuff. Uh, Great. That's the, that's the author that I'm quoting. Oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've always had my own philosophy on that. Uh, unfortunately, mine is always twenty twenty hindsight. You know, years after something, I'll be thinking about it, and I'll go, why was I upset? How stupid that was. Right. How, 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 whatever it was. Now, this is certainly not stupid we're going through, but it's, we're going to get through it. That's as simple as that. No, but it, it no, but in my life, there's going to be plenty of stupid things that are coming <laughs> There you go. There you go. Um. Now, now, you've written an amazing it's work. Stupid doesn't quit. It's a stupid doesn't quit it's because there's, a crisis. I wish it did. Well, I think I think stupid's like parsley. You know, the the fine meal has to have a little stupid somewhere in it. Uh, right, just to make right. It. And there's always somebody that eats it. There's uh, always somebody that eats it. Well, yeah, I, I've, that shows how good an author you are that you segued right into that. Um, yeah, my writing is uh, my writing is is definitely. So I have a, a show that's. Um, on hold, two shows that are on hold at this point. Um, you know, and, and we'll see whether the one in New York ends up being uh, delayed, you know, how long it ends up being delayed. It's kind of a shame because the company that's producing it certainly came a long way yep. to, to get where they were going to be in May. So it's it's a little heartbreaking from that point of view. Um, the production in uh, Salt Lake City, I think, is actually going to migrate online they're not quite in the same degree of lockdown that we are here on the east coast so i think they are still going to get together and do some kind of stage reading broadcast of it rather than um the full production that they were going to do um so anyway yeah it's it's affecting the crisis is affecting you know production on on all those levels and then i have you know a movie that was supposed to open on uh, April 3rd, which is now, I guess, Universal is going to push it back uh, indefinitely, and that poor movie has been pushed back two times already, so it's uh, it's kind of the weird <laughs> bastard child. I don't know if I could say that on your podcast. Oh, please. Oh, please. If you listen, Doug DeVita, another playwright, he, if, if he dropped one more F-bomb, I think I'd have to change my rating, so, so no, you're, you're right. fine. Yeah, my my movie, The New Mutants, uh, which I I think is it's maybe Fox Searchlight. You're part of The New Mutants. I'm part of the movie The New Mutants. I'm I'm the father of the um, sort of lead young man in the movie, and uh, our scene, a very quick scene that we have together, he he goes through this process where he imagines or sort of dreams things and they become true. 
Oh wow! So, are you are you a comic book guy? Because uh, uh, I'm 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 thinking about uh, the play you're doing with Spit and Vigor, Mary's Little Monster, and uh, and now and now you're in a, a Marvel movie. Are you are you a fantasy lover? Is this is this a, 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 a something near and dear to your heart? Jay, I'm sorry. Did you, everybody? Yeah, uh, I hear you now. Did you I'm hear so me? Sorry. No. What happened was I'm a idiot when it comes to my phone, and I don't know how to ignore people that come in. So I I hit what I thought was ignoring. It was my broker on the other way. <laughs> Just Check in with me, so Well, I hope your stocks are doing great. My therapist was in the room with them. So. Your broker and your therapist. You know, that's like a, a Freudian nightmare yeah. somewhere. I think. Yeah, they're 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 now they're they're in a Zoom call on, on a constant Zoom conference. They just call they just call clients together. Wow. Uh, I'm kidding. Yeah, um, my my broker sounds a little like my therapist. He's like, "It's okay, just uh, you know." I'm like, "I get it. I'm an adult, man. I'll be all right." Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't really. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know where to begin on that. So yeah, so the new mutants is like a. a we, he dreams that I'm. He dreams that I am. Well, I'm a coal miner because he's from what. I, think West Virginia mm -hmm. and his character, he dreams that I'm in a coal mine, like a very old fashioned coal mine with a pickaxe. And as I'm pickaxing through this wall, it starts to bleed and, and gush blood. And, and, uh, I sort of turn to him and, you know, ask him what he's done. Why has he done this? And, you know, it's part of his nightmare. So, so let me ask you: Are you are you uh, uh, considering the play you you have for, with Spit and Vigor, uh, and considering this, are you a fantasy lover? Are you a, a sci-fi horror fantasy kind of guy? I mean, I definitely I, I i would say I would say my favorite writing is my favorite theatrical writing frequently falls in that genre. I would say my favorite, you know. Uh, Series stuff that I see, Westworld, which I think is the best writing uh, television has ever seen. Indeed, uh, The Expanse, which is you know, now we understand that we're going to have to protest in the streets in order to get another season of it. Mm. Um, you know, I think that's because it challenges not just the imagination, but it challenges our understanding of morals and ethics, and and you know. The weird thing about science fiction writing is you almost can't write out um, the limits far enough before, by the time it gets produced, it's already been done. It's already fact. <laughs> it's not even science fiction anymore. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I'm working on a project right now that, uh, you know, so very much has to do with uh, the kind of world of information leaking and, and how, where the morality of some of that begins and also why people seem so, and I think legitimately so, 
we we believe something that co- that comes through WikiLeaks more than we believe something that's on the nightly news. It's like if it hasn't been leaked, we don't believe it. Why is you know that? I mean? Why is that? Because I'm thinking of this now, where everyone is online now. No one, no, no one can do a damn thing except except be on computer now for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, what's going to happen? Is, is it going to reach a point where where just anybody can suddenly decide what history is? Are we going to have that kind of leak mentality? I think I think we're I think there's a real authenticity gap that's been created. And I think it's always been there, but people just haven't really been as conscious of it as they are now. I mean, look, you know, when a group of multi-billionaires are feeding you the information that's been chewed up and spit into your little bird mouth, like, you know, like you're up in a little tree and mommy's giving it to you, you know, beakful at a time, ultimately, when it stops uh, jiving with reality enough times, you begin to look around and go, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't, this food isn't healthy for me. You know what I mean? This is garbage. Right. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, and, and so people are looking, I think legitimately so, for a way to be in touch with the primary source of, of, of incidents and, and history-shaping events. The problem is the Panama Papers are like, are like, you know, two billion pages long. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. You can't, you get, how do I get to the bottom of it? I mean, if you take a, a leak like uh, the Chelsea Manning leak, I mean, that data, you, you, you could never read it all. You know what I mean? You, you, so so there's, there's these kinds of, Big events that happen in history. I mean, I, there's stuff in the Panama Papers we're never even going to know about. Of course, because it's just buried. You know, I mean, I mean, Nancy Pelosi could have an offshore company that she's. You know, we just found out about these two senators that traded on the information they got from a briefing for, with coronavirus. Yeah, turned around and tweeted the next day that everything was good and we were making too much of it. Now, in my mind, those people should be going to, to big boy prison. Yeah, really. They should be on, we should try them, not on a minor SEC charge, but like on, you know, like on a, a you know, people should go after them for, uh, you know, on every possible level. It's almost treasonous. You could almost call it treasonous. treasonous. I would agree with that. I hesitated to use that word, but I feel like it is treasonous. Because it, because you you have contributed to the siphoning off of trillions of dollars of wealth in this country, and that's not an abstract. No, there are people you know people that are in the at-risk developing world who are going to suffer from this virus uh, on a level, hopefully not, but possibly if history teaches us anything, they will suffer far more uh, far more than we will, and in the country that that pays to help with the medicines and the food. I mean, the people of the United States feed something like 30% of all of the hungry children in Africa. Okay? I mean, it's a staggering amount of money, and it's a staggering number. But the the giving, the charitable giving that comes out of this country drops off dramatically during these kinds of things. We saw it during 9-11. We saw it during 
I mean, it, uh, an article, I wish I could lay my hands on it. I was looking for it again the other day about the fact that more people died in sub-Saharan Africa because of the aid that they didn't get in the wake of 9-11 that God. died in 9-11. You know... Of well, uh, philanthropy in the arts, that's the first thing that goes whenever we're in a, a fiscal crisis. Of course, of course. And so this isn't, this isn't an abstraction when you wipe out uh, when, when you wipe out America's ability to help do what it does every day of the week, and these two individuals contributed, you know, they, they, they sold off a million and a half, one of them, I think, and the other one, like, 750000 mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just them. How many people did, you know, if they're insider trading, they're in, their friends are insider trading. Obviously, obviously. You know. How many didn't so get I, caught? Right, and... and Proving that now, I'd like to be able to get the WikiLeaks on on their emails. Mm. That's largely what my play that I'm working on is about. You know, and, and but then the question is, what, what happens to that information? Do we just put it on the world as public shaming, or or does somebody actually? Is it moral to then find out that information and rather than just leak it to actually blackmail these people with it? In other words, to make them do something to make up for their having done this other thing. Because if you just put it out in the world, we're, we're inundated with evil. <laughs> yeah, really. You know what I'm saying? Well, you look at it in two senses here. You, you, you say yeah. something very philanthropic. You say that they need to do something about it. You know, that's, that's some form of billionaire community service, if you will. Uh, right. But you're using the term blackmail. I don't think it's blackmail. I think if someone is out to, to destroy and they're caught and just going to prison is one thing because they'll go to a, a summer camp prison and that'll be that. Uh, right. But, but if they are then asked to do something comparable, I know it sounds medieval when you get right down mm -hmm. to it, you know, in the days when you rob someone, they cut off your hand. Uh, put them in the stocks. Yeah, put thank you. So is, yeah. is, uh, you, you come to a very interesting point. If someone's going to take our data, our information, and sell it, if someone's going to take information that will make them money and possibly kill people, Okay, they need to then donate something like that. They need to start philanthropies. They need to to help as many as they've hurt. Maybe maybe that's well, the great I balance. Just see them cleaning the streets of New York with one of those things because oh, I'd like to see them in an orange I, jumpsuit I, I, also. Sure, but I, 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 because I actually think I personally think that that punishment should be something that. I mean, if you see these folks that got caught with the cheating scandal and how humiliated they were and how they tried to just get out of the minimum amount of jail time because of the stigma of actually going to jail, right. to me that just speaks volumes on why the sentencing needs to be much more even-handed and the jails need to be one jail fits all. Right, right. And, and I think we'll cut down on a whole lot of this. It shouldn't be like all these tiered levels for people. And because this white-collar crime versus this other... I'm sorry, you steal my... You, you steal somebody's pension, and then they have to go work at the Walmart, and standing up day after day just exacerbates, exacerbates their heart condition, their breathing condition. You're a murderer. You're not a... You're not a white-collar criminal. Right. You know? Right. So, I'm sorry. I, I just don't... I, you know, these folks did something which is greedy and despicable and uh, contributed, you know, very, you know, very tangibly to this original panic, which wiped out a lot of wealth.
agree. And they were paid by the by the citizens of this country while they did it. Mm. And they were receiving information that was privy to public servants while they did it. Right. So to me, it's a compounded level of those kinds of things. And when we see that kind of stuff, the sci- science fiction to me lives in the world largely where we start to imagine. I mean, I love movies like AI. You know, um, I love movies that begin to try to figure out how, you know, how these things get turned on their head. And that's why I love, you know, a a show like Expanse, because on the one hand, it is showing us these, you know, unimaginable frontiers of space in a good traditional sci-fi way. Um, But it's also challenging us morally and ethically at every step. You know, and, yeah. and uh, asking questions that are deeply integrated into the notions of, you know, t- technology and and morality and all these things. And I think we could write plays like that, too. So there is sadly a sort of stigma that is attached to quote-unquote sort of sci-fi plays. Um, although we have a wonderful sci-fi playwriter, um, uh, Carl Danielson, in Boston, who I was a part of a his uh, sort of sci-fi play festival a few years ago. Um, so, you know, there, there are people out there that are writing um, in the fantasy genre, in that kind of genre, but they're, they're fun, fun writers. Um, now, now, you wrote in that genre, and, and one might say that, that you picked a very interesting play right now, considering the time period. Now, in Mary's Little Monster, uh, we, uh, we meet these amazing authors of a particular time period, and their confinement, they are they are trapped in a in a a, a mansion during a, a, during the year without a summer. Yeah, they're, 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 this is this is true. I mean, that element of it is true. Uh, so this year without a summer was the was the byproduct of um, this volcanic explosion, one of the, one of the greatest volcanic explosions recorded in human history which essentially sent a cloud of dust over a large portion of Europe and Asia and created a minor, uh, little would you call like a minor mini ice age that happened for a few years. Right. And it really was incredibly destructive um, in terms of crop yields, and a lot of people died from it. And and the data associated with it is kind of weird because people didn't at the time Kind of be, they couldn't connect the dots exactly, and historians have later. Um, but uh, that's that's on this sort of weird kind of uh, atmospheric granular level. But on a, but then on this other level, here are these these writers who are kind of the rock stars of their age. Indeed, completely. And I mean, in fact, people uh, in Geneva, Switzerland would take boat tours around the lake and see if they could get a glimpse of them. Oh, yeah. They were like the Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylors of, like, you know, 1816. Right. <laughs> and, and, and they were fairly legendary because this was a, this was a second-generation woman, uh, you know, Mary Wilsoncraft, daughter of two very famous writers, her mother, probably being the most profound of the two, uh, who, who wrote The Rights of Men and The Rights of Women. And, and these were, you know, pre-pre-pre-feminist writings 
basically inspired generations of women who went on to be the women who, you know, created, uh, you know, the 19th century, all of our, you know, famous women of the 19th century who went on to, you know, become the suffragettes and become the education reformers and the science reformers and that whole movement of the middle 19th century that began in, in England. And this was, you know, uh, Mary Shelley, as she's known, but really Mary Wollstonecraft was really sort of right at the heart of that. It's almost right. like if we could, uh, you know, think of it kind of a, uh, you know, think of a leading feminist, her daughter, you know what I mean, kind of growing up in that world. And in a weird way, Mary was really trying to emerge from the shadow of that and kind of living the hippie dream in some ways by running off with Percy Shelley. Oh, hell yeah. But, but, but of course, there's some really, really screwy complications within all that. I mean, the fact that he was married, and, and some of it is realized in the play, and some of it has to be very compartmentalized and kind of sped up in order to make it work dramatically. So, you know, I'm really compressing this, and we're really just looking at the snapshot of the culmination of all of this into one sort of um, combustible night. Um, and that was quite the combustible night, because aside from Frankenstein, uh, which yeah. which she created, uh, Dr. Polidori, uh, yeah. in there, he... Uh, uh, and there's a nod to him, I realize, in, in Bride of Frankenstein, because that's the name of the doctor that tries to create the bride. Yeah. It's Dr. Yeah. Polidori. And that's uh, a true story, too. That, that's true, actually. Don Polidori, who was a, a, a remarkable physician, but also, in fact, a sort of sycophant to Lord Byron. Yep. Uh, yep. Was, was the original, did write the original English adaptation of, of, of the vampire story, which was something that had been sort of knocked around Eastern Europe and uh, as a kind of folk tale, and um, uh, he he sort of refined it and brought it to um, you know brought it to publication. I think his and, his is the 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 movie Vampire. I think takes a great deal from him, and needless to say, Bram Stoker uh, uh, took a, a waft from his from his work as well. Yeah, very much so. I mean, and of course, you know, and I mentioned it in play too, that our notions of copywriting and, and uh, authorship and all of those things really were very tied up in class and access and all of those Completely. things in the 19th century. So, you know, your ability as a sort of middle class uh, kind of yeomanry level person to to be able to really hang on to your writing is, is something that, but you know, even Byron, and this is something I don't mention in the play because we don't really deal with his death, but, you know, arguably some of the greatest writing, you know, his journals, which would have been the great, one of the great treasure troves of, of, uh, you know, autobiography anybody would have ever had, you know, were of course burned by his friend. Right. Oh, yes. You know, arguably to protect his legend, but also no question to protect their own uh, reputations. And that's know? why we have the Shakespeare conspiracy as well. Right. So we, you know, with all of these people, we have, you know, in some cases, people's legends are, are you know, often sort of, 
inflated and, and built upon by their errors, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there are people like Shakespeare and Byron who we know, if we knew more, their legend would only be greater. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say, uh, and, and this is one of those moments I, if people read this play, I built a lot of Easter eggs, if you want to think of the uh, Ready Player One sort of uh, reference there. Uh, I built a lot of little literary Easter eggs into the into the writing of this. So as you you know the the period and you know some of the writing and some of the characters involved, you'll you'll see little things pop up here and there references because they don't go around te- citing their references. They're people that just speak. Um, they're incredibly educated. They're incredibly young. They're very passionate, and they entertain themselves by proving that to each other, you know? Yeah. It's a kind of a repartee as, a, like, tennis match that they that they do, and they, they don't take time to cite where this comes from or that comes from. They're just drawing from all kinds of different literary sources and quotes all the time. It's their and brilliance, it's, of course, uh, on their sleeve. them up, fucking them up, you know, yep. people do, you know, I mean, you know, Percy's, you know, Percy says to, uh, he, he's sort of the character in my show, Percy, that, that version of Percy Shelley is always frustrated with Byron because, you know, he sarcastically says to him, nobody quotes me better than you. Yeah. You know, it's like he was constant because Byron's constantly reminding him of things that he's written that he doesn't live, you know. It proves what a hypocrite he is. The, the, the big issue of this, and when the people in Salt uh, Lake City came to me and said, well, you know, we're thinking of having an all on the cast of this show. What do you think? And I said, I think it's a brilliant idea because the show is, is really, it's not about gender. It's, it's about it, the it's icons of them. It's about who they are. Right. Yeah. It, they're, they're, they're transcendent of gender. They... In fact, the men have transcended traditional gender roles uh, in their bisexuality. I was about their, to say that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, in their in their their, their sort of diffidence to believe in the notion of gender. You know, as if you're going to define me by your gender role. That's that's not going to. We're not going to do that. And the women, of course, are trying their hand at that as well. Although they're not. Um, Either of them, at least in my reading, I, you know, and I'm also a little cautious about this, but neither of them really are, have a bisexual element to their characters. They're, they're, they're more focused on other things, I right. would say. But, do you think now, do you think now, because we're in our own uh, a year without a spring, if you want to get, right. if you want to get ironic yeah. about it, uh, do you think we're going to create such work, do you think the artists that are now having to talk to people online and calling and whatever else, do you think uh, amazing classics will spring forth? And for that matter, do you think, as this is the same kind of nightmare as the year without a summer, you think the the level of horror and science fiction is just going to, to amp up from all of this? You know, it's so funny that you say that. My, a, a comedian friend of mine, uh, Ashley Strand, said in, in a very sort of droll and ever in humanly embittered way, said to me the other day, oh, 
just can't wait to read all the, uh, he said, Jim Morrison inspired poetry. Right. That's a great way of putting it. Okay. I immediately, I immediately, uh, uh, downed, uh, you know, three shots of bourbon and Kate took half a gummy bear and wrote my own, like, uh, fantastically optimistic poem that I put up, uh, online. Uh, you know, just because, well, possibly just as a big, you know, literary middle finger to Ashley, because I, you know, sent him a link, but I, I think absolutely because more writing is better writing. Yeah. You know, more, the more we write, the better the writing gets. I mean, that is my, my, my favorite authors are prolific and they, a lot of their stuff is shit, you know, <laughs> but I like to read the good stuff. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because when, when Joseph Papp died, he was, he was the founder of, of the public theater, as you know, and, and did you, I, I met him for about 18 seconds at a, at a, a school event and, and it was like I met some form of God. Uh, but John Simon, when he passed away, and they hated each other. They hated each other immensely. Uh, and, and when Joseph Papp died, John Simon's, uh, everyone's proclaiming Joseph Papp to have been a genius and all of that. And he said, no, he just did a lot of work and eventually some of it had to be good. Right. He did so many damn plays eventually. <laughs> you know, you do it enough and something's going to be brilliant. And, and that's not even an insult, I guess. Right. I mean, are, right. You know, this whole, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, uh, Outliers, which is such a terrific book, Malcolm Gladwell being probably my favorite author. Uh, you know, this whole notion of this 10,000 hours of critical mass of your practice, and then all of a sudden you really start to do great stuff. I mean, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, part of the reason I'm such a marginal writer is because I, I just... I just don't write nearly as much. I'm too busy doing other things that I, you know, some of which are very valuable, like raising my children, but then others which are less valuable, like grading papers, you know? I, I got to uh, cut you off on all of that because uh, you don't have to just type. Uh, the fact that you are raising human beings, that sounds like a pretty noble thing. And from one educator to another, I think that's a way noble thing. And you are you are doing every form of art. You you act. You produce. You write. I think I think the I think you're. Well, I, I wouldn't say you're not doing enough. I would say you're adding so much spice, which is absolutely wonderful. Well, I think the more we do, the better we'll get. And so for sure, I think there's I think there's a lot of writers out there uh, this during this period who um, you know they're, they're going to have all the great impetus they need. Yeah. One, uh, I don't know about you, but I I have to subdue a panic attack when I go to bed at night. I mean, I'm not a panicky, panicky guy. I'm claustrophobic and a couple of other things, but, you know, I'm pretty, I count myself to be a fairly resilient guy, but I, I have been, you know, choking back a panic attack pretty much every night, and I think it's damn good for my writing, you know? Uh, it's a good kick in the ass, emotional kick in the ass to like get to my core of what makes me tremble. And I think a lot of people have that going on and then they also, you know, have time. So I think we'll see some people come out and 
and take their work to the next level through this crisis. I also think this crisis is going to noble a lot of people's spirits. Um, and there's going to be some really, if you look around, you're going to see people demonstrate some real beauty and courage if you keep your eyes open. I'm, I'm going, I'm going to uh, write two things down that you have said. Number one, three bourbons and a gummy. Uh, half, a, half a gummy. Half a gummy. All right. Well, that's okay. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, and and uh, you know that the panic attack is good because I'll 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 keep my image to my my viewers and my colleagues, and I'll I'll just say, yeah, I'm going to write down that panic attacks are good and that they help, uh, and I'm going to hold you to that. So sorry. And I sort of got back, you know, had to go back to that community over and over again. And I, I found myself even getting involved with that community on a level that I never did as a child. I was just, as a child, I was just trying, you know, people used to ask us in high school, where are you going to go when you graduate? And we would say, anywhere but here. Yeah. You know? 
we're going out of here. Yeah. You know? So, and, and this is an interesting crisis because there's no escaping it. It's, it's everybody. And I've lived through an earthquake in California and the riots in Los Angeles. And those things all had that weird sort of, you know, we're all in it kind of quality. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. I've, it's, it's, I'm it's old enough. on anybody, but it definitely brings people... It, cl- it clarifies some things. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to to remember everything from from uh, Watergate through AIDS and 9/11 and whatever else. And it, it always seemed uh, there was someone who could sit back and say, "Okay, that doesn't pertain to me." But something like this, yeah, this is. There's no one who can say I, I'm not affected. It's, it's, it's a great unifier, you know, like a war, and um, you know, again. We don't have to apologize for finding the beauty in our everyday life. We don't have to. We don't have to feel, we don't have to languish in our misery. It will help no one. Right. Uh, right. We can, we can look for the beauty in, in, in our everyday existence and, and write about it. I, I, and, I, and I think people are... I'd love to see more of that. I, I, I really would. Mary is a very positive play in some ways. Like, she breaks through. I'm not, you know, being a spoiler, but, like, um, she, she broke through, and she found her voice, and it was, a, it was such an incredible monument to her entire life. Um, and I think that can, I think people, I hope when people see the play, they look at that and think, you know, uh, you know, put, put it, you know, John says to her, uh, don't, don't try to be the sun, light, light a candle. Oh, that's very interesting. In darkness, you know, just try to light up one little corner of the room, you know. That's really quite uh, brilliant. You know, don't, don't, don't do it all, just do your piece of it. Yeah, um, just, just and, and do that piece. And on that, Tom, thank you so much. That that's 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 words to live by. No, that's okay. Every word has been a gem. I'm. I, I think I'm going to notate this and then wiki link it out or something. Um, it's really brilliant. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, let's hope we can all be there for Mary's Little Monster, uh, and that the world is a better place at that time. Yep. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, the Players Theater, when it happens, indeed. When it happens. Right. right. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Ciao.